Well, today is Wednesday. It's the 17th of February, and uh, we're still uh, housebound because we don't have uh, an ability to get out of our driveway. So it's time to do the Wednesday lesson, but we're going to do it from my study here in Austin, Texas. All right, rather than our church, which is, of course, in Westlake Hills. All right, and it, today we're going to study the doctrine of the poor. All right, but before we do, as is our custom, let's remember the application of First John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to study your word by means of the internet and also our podcast. So guide us and direct us now as we do recognize that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see what the Bible has to say about the poor. So now, for purposes of this lesson, the poor shall be confined to those who are truly destitute, excuse me, and in need. So it'll certainly exclude those who do not wish to work and those who choose crime, drug addiction, alcoholism, or homelessness. Notice I said choose. Alright, we are speaking to those who are physically or mentally, that is to say we are not speaking to those who are physically or mentally disabled. Alright, first, let's look at a little background about the Bible and what the Bible teaches about economic systems. For example, prosperity, the economic principles found in the Mosaic Law, and how they should be implemented. Let me give you 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, and I shall read... We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, patricide and then matricide, for murderers in general, for whoremongers, one who consorts with prostitutes, that's a pimp or a john, the word whoremonger. Alright, now for them that defile themselves with mankind, uh, of course that's a reference to homosexuals, for men stealers, those who kidnap, for liars, for perjured persons, 
and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So we have a, a brief description then of the law that a national entity is supposed to implement and uh, naturally enforce. But let's look now at the New International Version. Again, First Timothy 1, 8, 9, and 10. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for men that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. All right, maximum freedom for the individual is God's optimum and represents a manifestation of the first divine institution, which is volition. The four divine institutions which God loves and likes to support with vigor, those four are volition, choice, marriage, family, and nationalism. The right of private property and protection of property rights is repeatedly established in Scripture. Exodus 20, verse 15, and uh, then verse 17, You shall not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And there you see the right of private property, the right to own something. All right, Exodus 22.2. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. Now recall, we're talking about what the Mosaic Law has to say and has implemented with the New Testament. We're not talking about what the laws of the state are. You must obey the laws of the state. But we're talking about, I guess you could say, the optimum, the best, if in fact you had a nation that respected the scripture. All right, Matthew 12, excuse me, Matthew 12, 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Or Second Thessalonians 3:11 and 12. We hear that some of you, some among you, are idle. They are not busy; rather, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Free enterprise. <coughs> excuse me again. Is God's plan for his client nations. A free enterprise system will produce excess and thereby provide maximum resources for charity. 
Scripture provides insight into what causes poverty. And in the verses that we're going to look at, you will find numerous uses of the English word sluggard or slothful. The Hebrew word so translated is atsel, A-T-S-E-L, anglicized, and means idle, habitually lazy, lethargic, lean, or indolent. Atsel is often used as an adjective to describe one who fails to work and thus save for the future. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Beginning now, and I shall read. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. Now let's look at Proverbs 10, 4, and 5. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Proverbs 19.15 Laziness brings on deep sleep, and the shiftless man goes hungry. Wickedness, or evil, we often call in our church, reversionism. That's a themeism. The kernel theme came up with that. It's, we know what it means when we see it, though you may not find it in the dictionary. Reversionism is the product of a refusal to apply the protocol of God. As a general rule, God makes it tough on people who are negative toward his protocol. Notice Proverbs 10.3 The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Proverbs 28.20 A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Malachi 3.10 Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now you know and I know that the Bible teaches us not to get under the Mosaic Law, but to stay away from it. Because we can't keep it. And that's what Malachi is. It talks about tithing, and we know we're not supposed to tithe, and this is the age of the church. But in our teaching about uh, giving in the New Testament, which we have on our on the internet, we have, of course, a doctrine of, of giving. Uh, it has almost the same 
meaning is Malachi 3.10. In other words, when you follow the scripture, he does open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessing. And that, of course, can be found over in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And we often talk about that in our church service, don't we? And I quote from there. But that's another categorical study, giving, which we may indeed take up before long. Now let's go to, on our, in our lesson plan, which of course you will have also on the internet, the written plan as well as the audio, as well as on our podcast. 3.3. A drunkard or glutton will experience poverty. Proverbs 23, 20, and 21. Now, you know drunkenness is a sin. It's okay to take in uh, alcohol in moderation, but never drunkenness. So let's take a look at 23, 20, and 21. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Being industrious is a means of avoiding poverty. Foolish people pursuing impractical fantasies also make for poverty. I once knew a man who had the idea that if he lay down in the sun on a cot and took in the sunshine and sunbathe and read the Wall Street Journal, that he would get rich. Not so. To get rich, one must apply oneself. And that's part of this doctrine. So let's go on. Being industrious is a means of avoiding poverty. Foolish people pursuing impractical fantasies also make for poverty. Proverbs 28.19 He who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. All right, a a slothful man is lazy and as a result, often poor. Proverbs 19.24 The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. The indolent in the Old Testament economy were often lazy, and as a result, quite frankly, they ended up as, in many cases, slaves. Notice Proverbs 12.24. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. The habitually lazy are very often also wasteful. Proverbs 12.27. The lazy man does not roast his game, but the diligent man prizes his possessions. There is a great difference between the life of the habitually lazy man and the life of the energetic man, says Proverbs fifteen nineteen. And I'll read. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. The miser who seeks a fast profit, often finds poverty. Proverbs 28, 22. 
A stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. No matter how hard we try to eliminate poverty, these efforts will prove futile. The poor will always be with us. Poverty will only be eliminated when Jesus returns at his second advent and provides perfect environment. Matthew 26, 11. <clears throat> Jesus says, The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The millennium, that is to say, at the second advent of Christ, where Christ implements perfect environment for a thousand years, we call that the millennium. The millennium will certainly be a time of righteousness, prosperity, and universal peace. Notice Psalm 72, verse 7. In his days the righteous will flourish, prosperity will abound, till the moon is no more. In Isaiah, predicting, verses 2, 4. Chapter 12, verse 3, and chapter 12, verse 4. Let's read first chapter, excuse me, 2, verse 4. Speaking of what Christ will do, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not rise up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Again, a reference to what happens in the millennium. Not today. And I refer you to our doctrine of war, which you can find again on the internet under Pastor Merritt's study books. All right, let's go to Isaiah 12, verses 3 and 4. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. And proclaim that His name is exalted. Again, millennial promises. Now let's continue on with Isaiah 61, 1, 2, and 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord said, Jesus is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Again, a reference to what Jesus did when He offered His kingdom to Israel, but they rejected it. As John said, He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. So the promises found there in 61, 1, 2, and 3 refer again to what he would offer. However, unfortunately, Israel rejected it. But it's coming. It's coming 
after the rapture of the church, the seven years of the tribulation, and then the Lord comes back. And then he will certainly fulfill all of the things found there in Isaiah 61. Alright, Jesus' prediction of pervasive and everlasting poverty was part of a rebuke to the world's greatest liberal, Judas Iscariot. Notice John 12, 4, 5, and 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, <clears throat> who was later to betray him, objected. A lady you couldn't you remember came and it was one of the <clears throat> excuse me sisters of of Elijah and put the perfume on his head and so Judas Iscariot protested. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. In fact, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now this not only was a proclamation from Judas Iscariot, but the other disciples. They did not understand. Alright, and that's another story for another time. Now this does not mean that we should refuse to perform what God commands with reference to assisting those less fortunate. God does provide certain mandates with reference to such assistance. It is the Lord who makes the poor and the rich. Therefore, it is he who can eradicate poverty as well as bestow affluence. Notice 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Psalm 113, verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings down one and he exalts another. Charity for the truly destitute is a bona fide function for establishment. Notice Proverbs 29.14 If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will always be secure. Exodus 23 verse 11 But during the seventh year, that was one of the the uh, times when God was to have the land, for example, not... Uh, Killed. In other words, it was a Sabbath that they had a seven year, you had a seven year Sabbath, just like you had a seventh day Sabbath, just like you had a Jubilee, etc. But that's another lesson for another time. So let me again go to Exodus 23:11. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. And then Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings, gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. 
leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So you can see provision is made for the poor both as far as the Sabbath is concerned and what happens as well as when you harvest. All right, the tithe paid to the national treasury every third year went to a fund designated for the Levite priest and the poor of the land. You remember the priest didn't get any land when God gave out the land to the 12 tribes. Instead, he gave, you remember, a dual portion to one of the tribes. But in in fact, uh, it also says not only the Levite priests, they should be taken care of, but also the poor of the land. Notice Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. All right, there is no authorization in Scripture for assisting the poor in other lands. Very interesting, isn't it? Internationalism is always evil. There is, however, one exception. And let's see what that exception is on page 7 of our lesson plan. The exception is we are to evangelize the entire world. However, each national entity is responsible for what occurs within its national boundaries We should never violate the sovereignty of any nation. If a nation prohibits evangelism, then we should adhere to their wishes and not send missionaries. God will take care of that problem. All right, there is a special blessing for those who help the poor. Proverbs 22.9 A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Psalm 41, 1 and 2. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desires of his foes. (coughs) Excuse me. There is not only a governmental responsibility to assist the destitute, but individual citizens are also to assist those in need. There, by the way, is a special discipline for those who ignore the needs of the poor. Notice Proverbs 21.13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. So through poverty, many unbelievers see their need for salvation. Yes, God uses everything. Mark chapter 10, verse 23, 24, 25 is the word grace stands for. God really always does cause everything. All right, G-R-A-C-E. God really always causes everything. All right, here we go. Mark 10, 
verses 23, 24, and 25. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not impossible, but it's difficult because he trusted his riches rather than in God. And this is an idiom that is to say, going through the eye of a needle, a camel, uh, the gates of a temple, excuse me, the gates of a city uh, were closed at night for traffic and uh, there was always a door beside the gate of the city which was, uh, I don't know exactly how high, but not too high. And it was very difficult for a camel to go in uh, so uh, the owner of the camel or the one who's responsible for the camel had to know how to get the camel to go down on his knees and crawl through the small door. It could be done, but it was difficult. You had to train that camel. And uh, again, some camels, I suspect, didn't take to that. But that's the meaning of the idiom. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but difficult. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. The poor are fortunate in one sense, for they avoid superficial or pseudo friends which come from having wealth. You probably some of you have experienced that. People like a rich man, they flock to him, you know, hoping for favor. Rich men and politicians. All right. Proverbs nineteen four. Wealth brings many friends, but a poor man's friends desert him. The poor are often a target for hypocrisy. The poor in the local church should have the same spiritual privileges as the wealthy. Most important, James, who was in charge of the Judeo-Christian churches in Jerusalem, noted the problem and the solution. So James says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I'll read, My brothers... As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, friend. But then you say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He answered, yes, you have. So as the church age evolved, we find the epistles instructing believers with reference to the poor. We are to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and we are to never think about revolution or disobeying authority. Thomas Jefferson was flat wrong when he said, and I shall paraphrase, citizens need to be armed in order, in order to remove those who refuse to leave office. Vote them out, people. Yes, vote them out. 
but do not carry them out. All right, even when government exceeds its authority and eschews establishment principles, we are to heed its commandates. We are to heed its laws and rules and regulations as we saw over there in Romans. For example, if the government steals from the rich by requiring more than a 10% across the board income tax and foolishly throws money at every problem, including the eradication of the world's poverty, we are to react with faithful submission, even though they are obviously wrong. All right, the epistles seem to demand that each local church address poverty. It is, however, a matter uniquely the province of individuals within a local church. For example, benevolent funds are to be established within each local church to care for their indigent. First Timothy 5.3 Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And again, I refer you to our doctrine of giving. Now then, let's take a look at 1 Timothy 5.3, reading through verse 7. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. The widow, who is really in need and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And then verse 7 says, Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. James 1, 27 Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It certainly should be noted that all of the assistance is based on a free will offering without pressure. Never do we find instruction to help those who can and will not work. In, fi- in fact, quite the contrary. Excuse me, quite the contrary. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses eleven through fifteen. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. <clears throat> Excuse me. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, that's Second Thessalonians, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let's look at a problem passage and apply some of what we have learned. Acts chapter 4 verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Again, this is a reference to the disciples, uh, in the broad sense of the word disciples, those are followers of Christ who were told to go to Galilee, you remember, and wait for instructions there in power from on high. And they did, and they stayed, and then we had a misinterpretation of uh, Scripture, Christ's words by Peter when he preached, you know, that they are just to stay there and wait for power and Christ would return back immediately. Neither Jesus, excuse me, neither Peter nor the rest of the disciples had any idea about the dispensation chart. Keep in mind, we have a doctrine of dispensations and it is on the podcast and it is, uh, in the, uh, on the website. Both the written and the audio lesson, it tells us about things that are going to happen in the future. But these disciples had no idea. And so they thought they were just supposed to stay there and Jesus would come back very, very soon. They would not leave there. And time went on and on and on. They soon had maxed out their credit cards, if you will. And things were rough. And uh, you remember the, it was a, as we will see, uh, it was, uh, oh, um, Barnabas who went to the Cyprus and got some money and came back with it to help the people who were waiting around and didn't have enough means to provide for themselves and their families. And this was misinterpreted, but let's, let's go on, you'll get the gist of it. And as a result, some people have taught this passage, which we just read uh, in our lesson plan, is used to justify uh, socialism and communism. Not so. All right, and I made a point there. There are those who teach this passage authorizes socialism, communism, or liberalism as the Christian's paradigm. Nothing could be further from the truth in the light of a categorical study. The ultimate welfare state cannot tolerate private property. The Bible, however, very clearly establishes the right of citizens of a state to own private property. Socialism and communism in its purest form eliminates private property. The problem passage then, Acts 4.32, is a clear display of Christian charity at work and does not imply state control. For the misguided, I would simply ask, where is the state mentioned in this passage? God's protocol (coughs) protects property rights. Notice Exodus 20 verse 17. You, and we've seen it already in this lesson plan, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And that certainly includes the state also. The welfare state is based on class hatred and a desire for equality of all peoples, even to the transfer of wealth from the rich to the poor by means of government force. God is not an egalitarianism. Neither the millennium nor heaven will be a place of equality. 
I know this surprises a lot of people. God is not an egalitarian. Notice what Jeremiah 31, 32, 33, 34, and then we'll go to the book of Hebrews and what they have to say about the place of equality. The time is coming. Now this is reference to when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. It's easily discerned by reading the context. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, referring to the Mosaic law. All right, let me read that again. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This, the new covenant, which will be implemented during the millennium, is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Sometime after that time. I will put my law in their mind. And when will that come? Of course, that will come after the seven-year tribulation. This is the covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now the covenant, the new covenant, that which will take place when the Lord implements it after his second advent, is repeated in Hebrews chapter 8. 8, 10, 8, 11, and 8, 12. Here we go. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. Notice, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. There will be the least and the greatest in perfect environment. Differences between people. But they will all be happy and will serve the Lord with gladness. Such community of goods as set forth in our problem passage will not compulsory, be compulsory, but voluntary. Alright, it was a way for the Christians to eliminate special needs. It was an act of voluntary sharing. This occasion occurred for us in Scripture, or was recorded in Scripture, as a beautiful display of oneness and caring among believers. It must be as observed this sharing was voluntary, voluntary sharing on the part of each and every believer. Compare Acts 4.32 with Acts 5.4. 4.32, which we've already seen, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of the possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now notice, Acts 5.4 Did it belong to you before it was sold? A reference again to 
Ananias and Sapphira. And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias, you see, was in trouble because he lied to the Holy Spirit, and so will be his wife Sapphira later. Lying to the Holy Spirit. Not because he did not give, but because he lied to the Holy Spirit. He went and sold his property, and he didn't bring all of the money back for those who were there waiting for the Lord to return. Those who had maxed out their credit cards. No, he lied. And so he died. All right, all of the shared in era uh, were anticipating the imminent kingdom when Christ would return and set up perfect environment. And it will be in that setting there will be no need for material things. So they were misguided in their assumption that the second advent was imminent. Notice the dispensation chart again. It's not imminent. We've still got church age to end, the rapture to occur, the seven years of the tribulation, and then the return of Christ, and then it will be imminent. So after reviewing Peter's first and second sermons, it is clear these church disciples had not learned of the church age and its intercalation. And I have provided an intercalation chart where you can see the kingdom age, which is when Christ was on the face of the earth offering his kingdom to Israel. And then you had the cross and you had the resurrection and the ascension. And then you had the church age. And the church age will end with the rapture of the church. It's in between two Jewish ages. The kingdom age is a Jewish age and the tribulation is a Jewish age. And then we have, of course, the end of the tribulation, uh, the second advent of Christ, and the thousand-year reign, which we have seen, the platform of the millennium, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the book of Hebrews. Now, I want to close by reading in part from an article which appeared in the July 27, 1998 issue of Newsweek, and it's entitled, The Faces of Famine. Quoting now, here we go again. Skeletal starving Africans are back in the news, this time from Sudan, parenthesis, a communist country at war with itself. And of course, that is my, uh, parenthesis, that is my parenthetical statement. I'm sure you know that yourself too, if you can, if you follow current events. And it's still going on, by the way. If you are moved, and you'd have to be heartless not to be. Now I'm continuing to quote. Uh, operators are standing by to take your check. If you have any doubts about your contribution, whether it will really help, the charities will assure you that food will reach these victims quickly and save their lives, at least until the next famine. Now you can change the channel with the warm feeling that you have done what you can to fight hunger. I too feel like reaching for my checkbook when I see the photographs. But I know better. After spending nearly 20 years in Africa as an aid worker and journalist, I know that fighting hunger is anything but simple. And I have learned that any donation I might make, in fact, 
ensures that next year I will see fresh photographs of starving people. And, of course, that uh, all depends upon what national policies the government chooses to implement. If you choose capitalism, you're going to have prosperity. If you dance around with communism, socialism, or liberalism, you're going to find your country will soon be in trouble because you're not following the rules and regulations that God has provided. And I hope in this doctrine we have provided, in essence, in summary fashion, uh, the rules and regulations. So now it's time to dedicate the closing moments to those who may be within the sound of my voice who are without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. So if you are one of those without hope, it's time for you to take an action. And that action is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved, as we like to say. Saved from what? Saved from eternal damnation, gnashing of teeth, pain and suffering. Just by simply telling God the Father, I am believing on God the Son. And as the scripture says, you will be saved. As many as received him, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So right where you are, respond to this invitation. Tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son. I know that I'm a sinner. The Holy Spirit makes that clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all you've got to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now for the benediction. Father, we are privileged to have been given the opportunity to present the Word of God. Guide us now and direct us, and I certainly would ask that God the Holy Spirit would continue to bless and that uh, to teach the Word, to make clear the Word of God that I have taught. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.